Miss Heidi, appreciate that so very much. Grab your Bibles, turn with me to Matthew chapter number 8, if you will. Matthew chapter number 8 is where we'll be. And for this evening's message, as we get started, uh, children, I'll let you know, we will have the uh, box of candy and treats up here. And uh, you can come up, bring a, a, a set of notes, or come ready to answer a question. You're in for a special treat tonight, children. Um, I have to run to the meeting with the teenagers, so Vice Chairman Dave Cooper is going to take care of the box of candy, and so uh, I told him to make the questions as hard as he could, and uh, no, just kidding, but uh, he'll be up here. He'll be in the box of candy and treats, and so you come up and see him. Give him a hard time, would you? All right, Matthew chapter number eight. We told you this morning uh, the title of this night's message, and uh, it will bleed into next Sunday night too, is Worthy. Worthy. When we come across that word in the New Testament, it's quite unique, quite interesting in its derivation, its origination. Um, The word worthy or worth comes from a Greek word that literally means weight, weight. In other words, something has weight to it. It is a, uh, it is worth, we would say in our common uh, vernacular, we have the statement worth its weight in gold. Okay, and uh, it's kind of the, the the idea of the word. It originated in a time that when people did business, they would buy things, they would sell things, and whatever. Coins were minted with the exact amount of metal that the coin declared to be its value. In other words, if we were to put that in our thinking, in our currency, we would describe it this way: a twenty-piece gold, or excuse me, a twenty-dollar gold piece contained about twenty dollars worth of gold. Okay, again, we're putting it into our currency. But when that word was established and come up with, it was that idea that it, it, it was represented its weight, what it was worth in the weight of that coin and so forth. Well, as you well know, when coins are repeatedly used, have you ever come across a coin that you could hardly read the date on it? You could hardly see what was on it and, and the date and so forth because it had been in so much use. It had been passed around. It had gone through many hands and it just kind of had worn down. And you can imagine, as that is the case, especially in that day when the coin's weight was ever important, as the coins would wear down, there would be material loss and such. And so as it passed from hand to hand, the coin lost its value because it lost some of its weight. Literally, it would lose some of its worthiness. When we come across that word worthy, its value, its weight. And so consequently, uh, uh, periodically, they would then, uh, somebody who was a merchant who was selling something or buying something, they'd say, hang on a second, I, I, I want to check your coins. And so they would put it in what uh, we would uh, describe as a, uh, a set of scales, right? And, and so what they would do is they take that set of scales, they put the coins on one side of it, and then they would put what it should weigh uh, on the other side and do a comparison and that is the meaning of the word worthy. It, it is the idea and where it came from. Okay, it, it, it's worth it. It's worth its weight. It's, it, it meets up to it and so forth. And so uh, in doing so, that corresponding weight would tell us whether or not it was worthy of being valued at the amount that it stood for. Now, one of the great usages in Scripture of this picture of a scale I've always thought of is found in Daniel. We know Belshazzar was having his great feast, his hedonistic feast, and uh, a terrible event. And, and God was saying, I'm going to send judgment. And he sent that finger writing on the wall, that hand, and, and quite an uh, amazing event. And as he did so, he called in Daniel to, to read the writing on the wall, if you remember it. And in Daniel chapter 5 and verse 27, Daniel uh, translates some of what was said or what was written on the wall. It says this, Thou art weighed in the balances... And are found wanting. You're found wanting. 
You've been weighed in the balances, and, and that became a familiar phrase. Down through history, you'll find that written in historical books and things like such, a phrase that was often used. You've been weighed in the balances, and you've been found wanting. In other words, the weight didn't matter. You were not worthy of what was here, what it should have. In other words, for Belshazzar in that example, he was not matching up to what God expected of him. He was not worthy. He was unworthy. It didn't match up in that weight, if we could put it that way. That is the meaning of the word. Now, when we understand the basic meaning of this word, now we can kind of trace it through some different passages and learn a few things in relation to the word. We'll do that in three different situations, or at least three different examples that you and I can now, okay, let's apply that understanding of the Greek word and of the original text to what we see here, okay? Look at Matthew chapter 8, if you will, with me. Let's look at verse um, 5 in following of chapter 8. It says this, and when Jesus was entered into Capernaum, there came unto him a centurion, beseeching him and saying, Lord, my servant lieth at home sick of the palsy, previously tormented. Jesus saith unto him, I will come and heal him. Okay, let's stop here. Let's recap it. An unusual event is the centurion has heard that Jesus Christ has arrived in Capernaum. Obviously, the reputation and testimony of Jesus Christ had preceded him by far. The centurion had heard some things, maybe from his soldiers, maybe from some, uh, maybe they've even began to arrest some uh, rubble-rousing Christians, whatever the case may be. He's heard of this Christ, and somewhere along the way, he's come to show some understanding of who Christ is, what he could accomplish. And so he comes to Christ, and, and he says, listen, Christ, I, I have a servant at home. He is, he is sorely vexed. He, he is, has succumbed to the, the palsy, and I'd like for you to heal him. I, I'd like for you to just do what I've heard you can do. Now, it's an interesting statement, because as he does that, Christ says what? I, I'll come. We just read it there in, in that verse. I'll, I'll come, uh, verse 7, I'll come and heal him. Notice verse 8, if you will, with me, though. Notice what Christ said, or the centurion, excuse me. Centurion answered and said unto the Lord, I am not, there's the word, I am not worthy. I am not worthy that thou shouldest come under my roof, but speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. Now that's an interesting statement. Christ says, I'm coming, I'm going to come to your house, I, I'll come and heal him. He says, no, 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 I'm not worthy to have you in my house. He acknowledges his unworthiness. In other words, as we see the meaning, the weight. If you were to put me in scales, Christ, with you, I, I don't match up. I, I don't meet that weight. I, I, I'm not in comparison to you. And so that gives us our first statement, if we could put it as such. He represents what I would call the, the admonition of the sinner. What is that? I am not worthy. The admonition of the sinner. I, I'm just not worthy. You see, the centurion in that statement is, is uh, acknowledging several things. What is he acknowledging? The first would be this, that first Christ, I know who you are. I know who you are. I find it quite interesting. You look at the passage again. Did you see how he first addressed him? He said what? Curios, Lord. He addressed him as Lord. Immediately, he recognizes some things about Jesus Christ. And I love this passage because it is very uh, insightful to the centurion's heart and understanding. First of all, he says, Lord, he acknowledges such there. And so we see it as a recognition of what? Well, Christ's superior position. He's already established his position. You are Lord, I am not. You are Lord. Uh, And he'll expound upon it. We'll see here in a moment. 
Secondly, we also see that there is a, uh, a recognition um, of, of God or Christ being a level above him. Notice verse 8, the rest of it as we just read part of it. But notice the second part specifically. But speak the word only, and my servant shall be healed. Verse 9, for I am a man under authority, having soldiers under me. And I say to this man, go, and he goeth. And to another, come, and he cometh. And to my servant, do this, and he doeth it. Okay? He establishes a great truth that we understand. But first of all, let's put it this way. Okay? We see Christ's superior power. Christ's superior power. So number one, he recognizes his superior position. You are Lord, but with this title, this position, there's also a superior power associated with it. In fact, we make this statement, okay, uh, and I think it's a good statement. There is an element of power connected to any authority. Okay? As parents, you have power over your children. If you have an authority, you have power over them. A state trooper has power over you as a citizen in a certain situation, scenario, whatever the case may be. There is power, a certain element of it, that is associated with any authority. Okay? Let me give you this illustration. Uh, children, okay, children of all ages, teenagers, has your mom and dad ever left the room or ever left your home and said, okay, I want you to be in charge? How many of you ever had that happen? Okay, older ones, teenagers? Okay, good, excellent, okay? A few, all right? I don't know about you. I never had the experience. I only had one older brother, and so I was always not the one in charge. He was always the one that got left. I was like, why, when can the run, when can the little guy get a, a little power, a little authority, all right? Now, I've seen it in my own kids. Sometimes we'll leave a room or we'll leave the house or something like that or whatever the case may be. And obviously, teenage boys are old enough. And sometimes, right now, even presently, we'll look at Carter and say, okay, and we'll look at everybody else. All right, Carter's, Carter's in charge. Now, you know what the rest of the kids do. <sighs> you know what Carter does? Now, you may see Carter walk around here. He may seem like the quietest thing around, but I'm telling you, he's not at home. Boy, Carter, he, he's pretty funny. He's actually rather humorous. And uh, the biggest, thing, biggest smile comes across his face. Well, for him, a big smile, okay? Comes across his face, and I'm like, uh-oh, we got trouble. I can just see what he's doing. He's playing it on. He's playing it on bossing everybody around. He's playing it on, okay, you're going to do this and this and this. I'll sit on the couch and watch basketball. You do this and this and this. And why? Because there's an element of power that comes with authority, right? Oh, he's always done a good job whenever we left him in. The house hasn't burnt down, so we're thankful for that. But, no, he's done a good job. But there's a th- power that comes with authority. And every child like, oh, that's wonderful. Leave me in charge. I don't want to be the one in charge. You, you leave the house or you, yeah, you leave the room. You're going to talk. And you say, okay, you're in charge for the next few minutes. That's exactly what this centurion recognizes about Christ. You have a position. You're Lord. And with that position, you have power. There's authority that you have that no one else has. And specifically to this, you know what he understands? And this is wonderful for us. He, he says what? You speak the word. All it takes is a word. And I, I don't know about you, but immediately I always tie this back to, I wonder if he understood that God spoke the world into existence. I wonder if he had any inclination when he said, oh, God, all you have to do, Christ, is speak the word. And I'm thinking in my mind, oh, I wonder if he knew. I wonder if he knew that God said, let there be light, and there was light. I wonder if he knew that, that God said, okay, we're going to make this animal. I'm just going to speak to existence and let, the, let there be the ferment, let there be dry land. And I, He spoke it into existence because he says all you have to do is speak the word. And I love the statement here. In that power, you have authority over the entirety of the world. 
the seen and the unseen, the physical and the spiritual. In Christ, you even have the power over the sickness that has crippled my servant. You have the power. You have the authority over it. I've noticed that about you, Christ. I, I've recognized it in you. I've heard enough things. I've watched enough things. And, and maybe, just maybe, there's a time that Christ was speaking and, and, and no one realized, but the centurion maybe was in, in, in clandestine and he, he, <laughs> incognito. He, was, he came around the outskirts. He just listened to Jesus Christ and what he preached and what he taught. We don't know, but what we do know is what he said. We also know what Christ says here in a few moments. But this man has a recognition of Christ's position, Christ's superior power, but we would also add to that he also recognized Christ's superior presence. Christ's superior presence. He, he readily admitted this. Christ, I'm not worthy for you to come into my house. My house, it may be beautiful. It may be one of the greatest in Capernaum. It, it, it may be one of the most beautiful and it outshines every other house, but it's still not worthy of you. I, I'm not worthy to be in your presence. You see, he acknowledged that even he himself, centurion, a ruler, one with authority, position, power himself, earthly speaking, I'm not worthy. My house is not worthy to have you in it. See, first of all, we, said he, we understood he acknowledged and admitted, I know who you are, acknowledged it. But he also acknowledges and admits what? Number two, I know who I am. I know who I am, and I'm not worthy to be in your presence. Uh, compared to you, I've been weighed in the balances, and uh, I've been found wanting. I have no value in comparison to you. I have no right. I have no weight that makes me worthy to be in your presence, to have anything to do with you, to even have you enter my home, to have your attention. And I would dare say the centurion, if he could expound, he would say, I don't, I'm not even worthy for you to talk to me, to acknowledge me, to give me the time of day. Jesus Christ, you, you're so greater and higher than I. It's an amazing admission. It, it, it's an amazing acknowledgement by the centurion and what he says to our Savior. You see, he saw Christ for who he is, but he also saw himself for who he is. He does not deserve the interest that Christ is showing him and certainly the interest in his need. In verse number 10, we have one of these moments. Now, don't miss this. I, I love these little... You might call them rabbit trails, but I love these little things that are inserted into scriptures. Makes us think. And just the little smallest uh, verse. In verse 10, we'll read it in a second, okay? So don't get ahead of me too much, all right? But I'll tell you this. It says the word marveled. Christ marveled. At, at what we just read, and we'll get to Christ's response, but he marvels at it. It kind of sets him back. It's what I would describe as one of those moments that I believe brings a smile to Jesus Christ's faith. Okay, as a parent, and I'm sure as a grandparent, sometimes it's just fun to sit back and listen to what your kids say, isn't it? To listen to what your grandkids say. And we, we know the Bible is true. Out of the mouths of babes, there's often wisdom, right? And uh, sometimes you hear a child say something, and you say, oh, that's hilarious. That's funny, you know? And just the way they say something and so forth, it's, it, it's very, it just brings a smile to your face. Here's one of those instances. Spiritually, I think our Savior is, is I don't want to say he's taken aback because I don't think he's surprised in a sense, but I also think that he is overly pleased. He has a smile on his face. He's marveling at this. 
Why? Why? Well, here's what I think. And I think the passage certainly bears it out. Have you ever thought, have you ever considered how (laughs) shocking and potentially discouraging it would have been like for the perfect God of heaven to leave such a place of beauty and holiness? To then in turn come to earth. (laughs) Come to a place uh, surrounded by the ugliness of sin. The corruption sin causes, the degradation it sparks, and be exposed to the absolute baseness of mankind who has been ruined by sin. To walk the streets of earth for 30 plus years seeing, don't miss it, how his creation now was not anything close to what he intended when he participated in his creation. It was corrupted. It was wicked. And and, and you think about it. For 30 years now, he is walking this earth that is night and day of heaven. You and I have heaven to look forward to. But I can tell you right now, I've mentioned a service before. We certainly would know that when Jesus Christ left heaven, he wasn't looking forward to earth. He left it. He left a place of beauty and and purity and holiness. And there the angels ministering to him, waiting on him, we might even describe what heaven is, everything. He left it. And where does he come? Earth. And what is earth? It is marred by sin. It is not a place of holiness. In fact, spiritually, it is ugly. The degradation, the terribleness, the consequences of sin have already taken root. The creation that God had intended for something much greater, something much holier, something much purer is no longer realized and it has been corrupted and messed up by sin. And Jesus Christ is walking this earth. Now, I don't know about you. I am sure am glad that I'm looking forward to heaven, but I'm just as glad that I never have to leave heaven and come back to earth full of sin. But that's what he did. And so I think there's moments like this. In fact, let me back up. You know what I, what I think too? I think as we often read in the scriptures, Jesus Christ prayed much. You know why? Taste of heaven. Taste of communion with God the Father. Here he was and he had willingly taken on a physical limitation of a human body in his incarnation. He needed supernatural strength to stay the course on such a sin-laden earth. And I would ask you tonight, you ever feel that way? Are you ever tempted to be overwhelmed by the sinfulness and wickedness of this earth? The degradation, the downward spiral of Romans chapter 1 that we seem to be living out even now in this earth. In those moments, I would encourage you to remember your perfect holy Savior who came from heaven to walk this same path to face the degradation that sin has caused. And I'll tell you, as he walked through a similar culture and atmosphere of the human race that had been given over to the consequences of sin, I believe that is why I think that these moments that we have described here were so precious to him. I think it's why it brought a smile to his face. I think it's why he marveled because, oh, he was sick and tired of seeing certainly all the the terribleness of sin and all that it had caused. And now someone had recognized him for who he is. And recognize themselves in light of who Christ is. 
could put it this way if I could. He has heard the words of the centurion, excuse me, but more importantly, he has heard the heart of the centurion. He has seen exactly all that you and I have just detailed of what the centurion was truly saying. And I want you to see our Savior's response and assessment, verse number 10 here in chapter 8. Notice it with me. When Jesus heard it, he marveled. There's that word, as I promised. And said to them that followed, Verily I say unto you, I have not found, not, I have not found excuse me, so great faith, no, not in Israel. That's a great statement, isn't it? We see it, and we've heard it before, and studied it in some sense. But he's heard the centurion's admission that he knows who Christ is, his position, his power, his presence, along with the admission that the centurion also knows who he himself is, a person unworthy of Christ. And now let's take it. Now let's connect the dots. Let's, let's go on the other side of the equation, if we might, in this sense. Okay? He says, you've admitted these things. I, I've seen it. What you have said, I marvel at, Christ says. It's a, or, or at least we know the Scriptures say Christ marveled at it, right? And so his recognition of his position, his power, his presence, it, it really uh, of who Christ is, who he is in light of who Christ is, Christ sees that, understands that, and he says your admission equals something in verse 10. He says, your admission of these things, it, it, it shows that there's something in you. It equals something. You see what it is? He says, what? It's great faith. I found great faith. Hence the smile on Christ's face. Hence the acknowledgement, wow, this is something special. I, I, I marveled at this. And a centurion, a non-Jew, in fact, it's pretty amazing. You, you've seen me for who I am and who you are in light of me and there is great faith. I mean, I just tell you, such an admission, as we have identified this, this is the admission of the sinner. I am not worthy. It is a vital part of faith. Romans chapter 10 and verse 9, we reviewed it earlier tonight, uh, not by accident or coincidence in a sense. Certainly God orchestrated it, but I had not planned it. We know the verse, that if thou shalt confess with thy mouth the Lord Jesus, do not miss the statement. You confess who? The Lord Jesus. Position who he is. And it goes on, that the mouth of the Lord Jesus shall believe in thy heart that God hath raised him from the dead, thou shalt be saved. Now we understand in New Testament literature and New Testament concepts that when someone speaks of God raising Jesus Christ from the dead, they are often including every aspect about the crucifixion, his burial, and his resurrection altogether. His sacrifice on the cross. And even in this verse, we understand that, boy, if you believe that God raised him from the dead, you are in that same capsulation, believing that he died on the cross for sins, that he was buried, and that, as Paul put it later, right, if Jesus Christ is still dead, we are of men most miserable. But because he lives, guess what we have the promise and the hope of to live to? Hence, the realization here, the power and the position, the, the presence of, uh, of Christ, as the centurion recognized, is what is necessary for faith. We see it again here in Romans chapter 10 and verse 9. We also see it in another passage, in Luke chapter 18 and verse number 13. You remember Christ was given a parable, and he spoke of a publican. That publican was praying to God, and, uh, and he said this. You remember what he said? He said this, be merciful to me, a sinner. Be merciful to me, a sinner. Now, Christ says something as he's teaching in that parable to those who have gathered around and are listening. He then makes this statement or this declaration. Christ goes on to declare to those listening that this man went away 
justified. Justified. Made righteous. Justified. Now think about it. What, what did the man admit? What did he acknowledge? What was his admission? I'm not worthy. In fact, if you remember the prayer, he wouldn't even do what? Lift his head up. Yeah, the Pharisee or Sadducee, whoever was praying on the other side, and, and I'm so thankful I'm not like this, and, you know, all in pride and everything else. And God said, uh-uh, you aren't justified. You, there is no admission of who Christ is. There's no admission of who you are. And yet here's this sinner, this publican. He won't even lift his head. And he cries out to God, be merciful unto me, a sinner. I would argue that within that little statement, there is the same admission the centurion makes. I am not worthy of you because I know who you are. You are a God who alone can show mercy, can give salvation. And I am a sinner not deserving of salvation. Christ is who he says he is, what the Bible says he is. I am who the Bible says I am. An admission, an acknowledgement. You see, faith that leads to salvation demands the admission that Christ is who he is, the Savior, the God and Lord of all, the only Redeemer, the sacrificial Lamb. It also demands the admission that I am what the Bible says I am. I am a sinner headed for hell. I am totally undeserving and unworthy of the attention of God of heaven and the sacrifice and saving grace of so great a Savior. It's the same admission that must accompany our daily living. Now listen. Here's the practicality. Certainly, I trust that we're all safe here. I trust that you and I have made that admission. But my friend, the same is very true of walking by faith every day. In fact, we know what the Bible says, don't we? The just shall live by faith. We know what it says. You're, you're walking every day. You're going to live by faith. The just shall live by faith. And it is just as necessary in the daily walking by faith that you and I admit tomorrow, Monday morning, the 6th of March, that, you know what? I so am thankful today. I'm so thankful today that, God, you are who you are. And, Father, today I want to acknowledge and I want to admit I am who I am. I'm not worthy to walk in your grace today. I'm not worthy to walk in your mercy today. But I sure am thankful that you're giving me the time of day, that I have your attention. That you love me and you delight in me and you provide for me and you meet my needs. Father, I'm so grateful. Much like that centurion. Recognizing the power, the presence, the position of God, of Christ. Recognizing I'm not worthy. I'm not worthy. But I sure am thankful I know the God who I'm not worthy of. That he loves me. He takes care of me. If we could put it this way, that the statement as we read it oft times, <laughs> at least three times in the New Testament, just shall live by faith as a reminder of the continual need to admit that every day I walk with my God and Savior, I am truly unworthy. God and me and the scales, whoo, so out of balance, so out of weight. He's worthy. I'm not. I'm so unworthy. We serve a great God. You see, there's nothing in me that makes me worthy to be called his. There's nothing in me that makes me worthy to be a part of his family, to be adopted into his family. There's nothing in me that makes me worth or worthy of inhabiting heaven, being with him for all eternity, to have my sins forgiven, to be redeemed. This morning we read the passage before the choir saying, Behold what manner of love the Father hath bestowed upon us, that we should be called the sons of God. We are unworthy. 
And yet the love of God has made it a way for you and I to be called the very sons and daughters of God. Be a part of the family of God. Can I encourage you? Can I ask you? When was the last time you told your God that you know how unworthy you are of all that He is and all that He gives? How unworthy you are. How thankful you are. And Father, I realize that I don't deserve anything. That Lord, I'm unworthy of even being able to talk to you in prayer. I am unworthy of even reading your word. I am unworthy of the promise and the hope of heaven. I am unworthy to be called a son of God. I am unworthy of anything and everything I have from your hand. When's the last time you said that to God in prayer? When's the last time you expressed it and just said, Father, I, I realize that. I, I sure am thankful that just like you did so long ago in Capernaum, you gave the centurion the time of day. I sure am thankful you give me your attention. You care enough about me. We will often say that we are sinners. We are just sinners saved by grace, and that's true. So let's not forget the admission that a sinner must make. What is that? Is this, I'm not worthy of the attention of God, of the love of my Savior, or of His interest in my life to the degree that He saved me and still ministers, ministers to me. I'm not worthy of any of it. That He cares for me, that He loves me, that He's involved in my life. I am not worthy. And then that leads to the second aspect. That's the admission of the sinner. Well, number two, we see what I would call the accolade befitting the Savior. You see, the admission of the sinner is I'm not worthy. It ought to be yours and I's every day, our admission. But there also then demands the accolade is even I think is found there within the story of the centurion, the accolade of Christ, of our God. Thou art worthy. Thou art worthy. One of the great realities of the New Testament is that it's given to us through the Holy Spirit and the authors that he used. It makes it clear that in Christ's day, and even I would say in our present day, the reality is this. The world did not in his day and does not in our day see Christ for who he is. They rejected him. and Certainly today people reject it. I, I don't know about you, but I, I, every, <laughs> every day I get more and more tired. Every time I hear it, I get more and more tired of the world taking our Savior's name in vain. i just put it this way, okay? We are not worthy, honestly, to even speak his name. Now, he has granted us the opportunity to do so. He is, in scriptures, uh, we are encouraged to cry out to him, and he's given us his name. Do not mistake it for a Jewish application in that sense. I'm just simply saying this. As much as this world is so sinful, the world doesn't even deserve to know about Jesus Christ, let alone use it as a cursed word. So I get sick and tired of hearing it. And I would say this, in that day and in our day, as, as people do not see Jesus Christ for who he is, the fact is they have in that proved their own unworthiness of him. But listen, the New Testament gives you and I hope. Through the revelation we find throughout its pages, especially in the book by that name, Revelation, the time is coming where every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. It's going to happen, and there is the, the revelation of it in the New Testament that that day is coming when the world will see him for who he is, and they will proclaim, and in action and in word, they will say what? 
Jesus Christ, thou art worthy. The day's coming. And in fact, if we were to apply it, we would say this. First, he is worthy. Why? Because of who he is. The world will acknowledge and admit the worthiness of Jesus Christ because of who he is. Who he is. That's what makes studying and revelation and looking at so wonderful. Man, you get to catch a glimpse of the time that is yet to come. Well, Jesus Christ will be seen as worthy of all praise and honor and glory across the world. Turn with me, if you will, to Revelation chapter 4. William, Revelation chapter 4 will be the last passage we look at. Revelation chapter number 4. Turn with me there quickly, if you will. Revelation chapter number 4. We look at verse number 11. Revelation chapter 4 and verse number 11. Some of you probably immediately thought of this verse when we use that statement, the accolade befitting our Savior, thou art worthy. Maybe this verse came to mind. Verse 11, Revelation chapter number 4, it says this, Thou art worthy, O Lord, to receive glory and honor and power. Okay? Now, what do we say? Well, first, he is worthy because of who he is. The rest of the verse goes on to explain why, who he is and why he's worthy. Notice it. For thou hast created all things, and for thy pleasure they are literally sustained. They're in existence, and they were created. Okay? I love the passage. It's a powerful one. Literally, what are we saying here? We're seeing that the Scriptures say, He is worthy of these things as the creator of all, the sustainer of all, and by the mere reality that all things were created for Him and by Him. You're worthy. Thou art worthy. Because you, you are the creator, sustainer of all. Uh, things were created for you. They were created by you. Literally, do not miss it. We're almost done. Listen. The purpose, uh, we are directly connected, directly connected to our Lord. The purpose of everything is connected to our Lord. In that sense, how could we describe it? Well, there's a term that I like to use. We are theocentric. Literally, we are God-centered. That's how life is created. God is supposed to be at the center of everything we do. It's coming back to that day in Revelation where everything will center around Jesus Christ. He will be the focal point. He will be worthy of honor and praise and glory. Why? Because He is the creator of all, the sustainer of all. He alone is God. That is how we are created. That was what creation was created for and as. For Him, He's the center. By Him, He is the center and the originator. Yet, or I should say in the same picture, we, we think of our own galaxy. It is considered to be sun-centric, or the more technical, scientific term, heliocentric. Meaning, as we know, the planets orbit around and they revolve around, they center around the sun. Much in that same way, the pictures there, our, our very existence is owed to our Lord, our, the Son of God. Our lives really should revolve around Him, just as the planets revolve and orbit around the sun, as we now know. But, but those of you who are students of science and history, you know, whoo, that wasn't always what was believed, was it? For some 1,500 years, it was promoted well beyond that. It was well beyond, pushed that we are a geocentric galaxy. That everything surrounded the earth. And don't you like the size differential they put on this? Such people as Ptolemy and Aristotle, they, they promoted this. They pushed this 1,500 years. It was accepted that, yeah, everything in our galaxy surrounds the earth. And we are the number one, the most focused, the center thing. And everything goes around us. And for 1,500 plus years, that was embraced. 
I'll tell you, I find a great illustration in that, don't you? Many people today, what do they think? Well, they think and live very self-centric. Their lives are all about them. The world revolves around them. They are the center of their universe. (laughs) The most important thing in their universe is them. What they think, their life. And yet we are told in Revelation the reality that the day is coming when all shall realize that Jesus Christ alone is worthy to be center of the world and the universe. He alone is the one for whom all this was created, by whom it was created. Now let me tell you how foolish it is for some to believe. We look back on that and they're silly. In fact, today in our modern culture right now, and we, for whatever reason, we've seen some ignorant people come up with the idea that the earth is flat. Have you heard that? I mean, some of the athletes in the world have shown that they are the dumbest athletes in the world because they have Twitterfied and Instagrammed. I made those words up. Um, they have said, put out there, hey, the world's flat. I kind of believe that. And you know what I say to that? You're foolish. It's scientifically been proven. It's not. It's a sphere and such. And, and we think that's crazy. We look back on those who say, oh, you know, the universe used to uh, orbit around the earth. And we think, oh, that's foolish. How much more foolish it is for anybody to center their life on themselves and not Jesus Christ. How much more foolish for somebody to say, I'm going to be self-centric. Everything, I'm the center of my universe. What I think, what I want, what I desire, it's all about me. It all focuses on me. We think that we alone are worthy of being the center and focus of our lives when Jesus Christ alone is. I just encourage you this evening, don't be mistaken. You and I determined today to live with Christ at the center of our lives. We, we might find ourselves like Copernicus. Copernicus came along during those 1,500 years, and he ended up being the first one to publish the idea that the galaxy, the universe, was heliocentric. Everything surrounded the sun as it does, and he realized that through some things, and Kepler came along, some others confirmed it, but he first published it. But here's what's interesting. He knew that it would ruffle many feathers. He knew that it would not be greatly embraced. He knew that he would be mocked in the world, the scientific world he he lived in. He knew if he came out and said, no, 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 this galaxy surrounds the sun. He knew that they would reject him, mock him, ridicule him. And so you know what he did? He waited to the last year when he died to publish it. 1543, I think, is when it was. He he, he didn't publish it anytime sooner, though he had written it and and had that uh, theory, and he waited to the last year of his life to publish it. I'll tell you, today, there is no doubt in my mind that we are in the minority when it comes to living lives that are Christ-centered. We look around us, and people don't really make Christ the center of their life. Uh, they, they don't order their steps according to God's Word. They don't, they don't really care that Christ have the, the ultimate say in their lives, that God does. But I want to encourage you today, though we might be in the minority, because we endeavor to make Jesus Christ, His Word, the center of our lives, the day is coming when you and I will be the first part of the majority. And my friend, it will not just be a majority of 51%. It will be 100% when all bow the knee and confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. When the world that surrounds us will no longer say, "Thou, Jesus Christ, you're not worthy of my life. You're not worthy of being the center of anything. They will all say and join you and I. And they will say, Jesus Christ, thou art worthy.
I don't know about you, but that sure is going to be a sweet day, amen? It's going to be a good day. I wanted to tell you today that you and I are unworthy of His attention and love that He so graciously gives us. We also know today that He is worthy of our all. Our all. Our lives. Our everything. May I just tell you, my friend, I stand before you and I'll tell you, it will be worth it all when we see Jesus. When we hear him declared, thou art worthy. My Father, I thank you for your word. I thank you.